Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek, and happy Easter. He is risen. That's how you know who the real Southern Baptists are. You hit them with their, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Well done. You can have a seat. It is so good to be worshiping with you today on this special day, this special moment where 2,000 years ago, Jesus came out of the tomb alive, died on the cross, and on the third day, busts out of the tomb. Our God is alive, church. And this is what it, this is what it's all about, right? This is why we gather every Sunday. This is why we sing songs. This is why we raise our hands. This is why we worship because our God is not dead. He is alive. So thank you so much for joining us on this special Sunday. If it is your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are, we are so excited and thrilled and honored, really, that you would be our guest on such a special Sunday. And, and I have a favor to ask of you, if you wouldn't mind doing me this huge favor before you head home. If you wouldn't mind stopping by our welcome table right out there as you go back out into the hallway, it's just to your right, our welcome table. We have a free gift that we would love to put in your hands today, just as a way to say, thank you so much for being our guest today. And then if you could, we have these little welcome cards. If you don't mind just filling that out, putting your information down. Uh, That's not for anybody else but me. It just gives me an opportunity to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. So if you do me that favor, I would really appreciate that. And before we we dive in today, I just got one more announcement for you. Uh, Next Sunday, next Sunday, we are going to begin a brand new sermon series going verse by verse through the Old Testament book of Ruth. So if if you can join us on that Sunday, Haynes Creek family, be here on that Sunday. If you're here and and you're like, man, I don't, I don't have a church home. I don't, I don't know where I should go on Sundays. We, we'd love to have you back for a second visit as we kick off this brand new series going through the book of Ruth. And Ruth is such a such a powerful and beautiful book of the Bible where, where it speaks to God's redemption in the midst of life's pain and brokenness and hardship. And we're going through those dark days. It can feel like we're all alone. It can feel like God is silent or has abandoned us. And the book of Ruth reminds us that that's not true, that even in our most difficult and darkest days, our God is at work. So again, I hope you can join us next Sunday as we kick off this brand new series going through the book of Ruth. Let me, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll jump into today. Jesus, we thank you for what this day means, Lord, that, that 2,000 years ago, Lord, you did not stay in the grave. You did not stay dead. You came out alive. You conquered death. You conquered sin and the devil and the curses of sin. Lord, you you conquered all of that. And, And because you live through faith in you, Jesus, we can have life. So we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for what this day means, Jesus. We love you and give you all the praise. And it's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. So as I was preparing uh, for this Sunday, I came across uh, an article and I feel like I come across these articles all the time where it's like 30 things that you don't have that you never knew you needed and it'll change your life right now. Have you guys ever seen some of those? And usually it's just like these these random gadgets that you would use in, in the kitchen or in your car. And some of them are like, oh man, that, that's pretty cool, right? Like that, that really would change my life. So it just got me thinking, you know, what are some things in my life that, that, that have actually changed how I live and, and, and what I do? One of those was... Uh, back in college, I, two years, I, I saved up all the money that I could find to buy my first MacBook laptop. It was, it was like, I, again, it took me two years. The only way I could afford it is because I made friends with a guy who worked at an Apple store and he gave me his employee discounts. The only way that I was even able to afford it, but I did. And, and from that moment on, I was like 20 years old, 36 now. I've, I've never bought anything other than a MacBook. That changed the way I do things. Another 
Another thing, this might sound silly. My, my wife uh, for Father's Day last year got me an air fryer. Air fryer, I don't know if you guys have one of these. They're, they're amazing. It will change your life. I do most of the cooking at our house because I enjoy it and I really like it. And an air fryer, I'm like, oh man, I could put all sorts of stuff in here. This is amazing. I love this thing. It's awesome. Uh, and then just recently, uh, we, we bought something that really has, it is going to change the way we do things, that change the way that we do travel. So um, we were on vacation this past week. We went out of town, took the kids down to Orlando, and it was awesome. It was beautiful. It was like 90 degrees when we left, and then it was like 40 when we got home. I was like, what is going Can we just turn around and go back home? Like, what is happening here in Georgia? But that, that's spring in Georgia, right? It's spring, it's winter, it's spring, it's winter, and then all of a sudden it's summer, right? Like, I don't understand. It's crazy. But anyways, we, before we, we left, we bought something that really changed the way that, that, that we're going to travel. And I don't know about you guys, there's, there's kind of different philosophies on how you pack for vacation. Some people are like, man, it's just, just the essentials. We're going to bring as little as we possibly can. And those of you that, that have been here know that I've, I've shared this with you, that my family's philosophy, the exact opposite. It, the, the question we ask is, how much can we bring? How much stuff can we bring with us, right? Like, that's our goal. How full can we pack the vehicle? And usually, it's like, it's filled to the brim. My son sits in the back. He's seven. He sits in the back in his car seat. And usually, it's just kind of like, I'm praying that I don't make a sharp turn because he's just going to be under an avalanche of stuff and caved in for the rest of the trip. Like, that's typically how we do it. But what we did this time was we bought this uh, this cargo carrier that kind of hooks into the hitch in the back of our car. I think it's amazing. How about this waterproof bag? And man, I just filled all sorts of stuff with that. I just put as much stuff as I possibly could. And then you could actually see out the windows. You could use the rear view mirror in our car. It was, it was a miracle. I was like, man, praise the Lord. How have I, how have I not done this before, right? Like this is amazing. And, and again, we, we have these things in life that we buy or we purchase or we use, and, and it really does change things. Or you hear something like, well, hey, try this new diet out. It'll totally change your life. Try this new workout routine. It'll totally change how you, how you work out and how, how you exercise and how fit you are. Or, or try this new parenting tip and all of a sudden your kids won't be uh, little difficult children. They'll, they'll be this, this amazing, well-behaved family. And it's like, you try that and it's like, this, how come this isn't working for me, right? Like, what did I do wrong here? Anyways, oh, that's another time for, for a different story. But, or, or hey, go to this new restaurant or, 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 or try this new gadget. It'll totally change your life. And sometimes those things really do change the way we do things, changes the way we live, changes the way we operate, sometimes even significantly, substantially, right? But, but none of these things are as significant, none, none are bigger, none will change our lives more than what happened on this Sunday 2,000 years ago when Jesus was raised from the dead. And this is the, this is the most important moment in all of history. In all of history, that's what we're going to talk about today. And this, this resurrection of Jesus is spoken about throughout our New Testament, throughout our Bibles. It's even spoken about in the Old Testament, where we see this, this, this prophecies and these foreshadows of, hey, this, this, this Messiah, this Savior is going to come. He's going to, he's going to die for our sins. He's going to be raised again. And then in the life of Jesus, we see all of that happen. And your New Testament tells the stories of Jesus's life, and they're, they're primarily found in the first four books of your New Testament called the Gospels. And we're going to hang out at the end of one of those, the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be in the first 12 verses. So Luke chapter 24, first 12 verses. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. We will have all the verses on the screen right here. We also have some Bibles on our welcome table. We'd love for you to take one of those as our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those home with you today. But Luke chapter 24. And before 
before I read, I just want to give you the backstory because we're coming into this moment, this significant moment in history, and we're just kind of skipping over a lot of the things that happen to get to this point. So before we get to Luke chapter 24, what we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus lived a perfect life, never once stumbling and sinning and and straying away from God the Father. And then for three years, he did this public ministry where he was preaching and teaching and performing miracles and healing people and exercising demons. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. It was incredible. He's doing this awesome stuff. And the whole time he's telling his disciples, look guys, I know this is cool right now, but but guess what? I'm going to be put to death. Things are going to change. People are going to turn and I'm going to die. But that's not the end because on the third day, I will rise again. So he's been telling this whole time. And just, just the week before what we celebrate on this Sunday, on Easter Sunday, if you, if you rewind just a week before Jesus rises from the dead, he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is often called Palm Sunday. To, to the, this, this chorus of praise and worship and adoration and people are are worshiping him and saying, he's the savior. He's come to rescue us from our sins. He's come to give salvation. They're praising him. But then those cries of praise quickly shift to cries for his execution. So about middle of the week on a Wednesday, Jesus, one of his closest friends, one of his 12 disciples who was with him for all three of those years, every step of the way, Judas goes to the religious leaders, these people who wanted Jesus dead. They were, they were jealous of his ministry, of his following. They, they didn't like the claims that he was making, that he was the Messiah, that he was God, and they wanted him dead for that. So Judas goes and says, hey, I'll, I'll give you Jesus. I'll tell you where he's going to be and when. Just give me some money. And that's exactly what happens. He agrees to betray his close friend, Jesus. And then on, on Thursday of Jesus' final week, he celebrates what is often referred to as the Last Supper. He, he shares this last Passover meal with his disciples, with his closest friends. And he reminds them in, in that meal that he's, he's just hours, he's just moments away from being arrested and put to death. So they wrap up this meal. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus spends the night in prayer. And in the, the early hours of the morning on Friday, his close friend Judas comes and approaches and with him, the temple guard and the soldiers. He betrays his close friend with a kiss and those men arrest Jesus and bring him to trial. Eventually, Jesus makes his way before the Roman governor at this time, Pontius Pilate, and he has the power to either release Jesus or give in to the Jews' demand to put Jesus to death. So he lets the Jews decide, what do you want to do with this man? And they shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's exactly what happens. So on that Friday, Jesus is crucified by the Romans, which began with a severe beating. And then they hung him on the cross. And hours later, Jesus breathes his last breath. He's buried, put in a tomb, laid to rest with a stone rolled in front of him. But church, that that is not the end of the story. So that's what brings us to Luke 24. So again, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 24, it says this, starting verse one, on the first day of the week, that that's Sunday morning, Sunday morning, on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb. These these are uh, the people that came were were some of the followers of Jesus, women followers of Jesus. We'll see their names in a moment. They came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes. So he went away amazed at what had happened. So these these two men in dazzling clothes, these these are angels, and they stand before the women who came to Jesus' tomb on Easter morning, and they ask a very important question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He is alive. He has risen in church. That is such good news. That is such good news. We do not serve a dead religious leader or teacher. We serve a risen Savior. Our God is alive. And today I want to just spend some time talking about why this moment is so significant and why it matters for my life right here, right now, today. But before I get to that, I want to I want to talk about one more question, perhaps perhaps the most important question, and that's this: Is this true? Is this true? Did this really happen? Because if it's true, then everything else falls into place, right? And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But but we have to first ask ourselves: Is this true? And you might be like the disciples, right? The disciples had to figure this out first. Like these women come back and they're like, guys, Jesus is gone. The angels, they told me he, he rose from the dead. He's not here. And, and they're like, whatever, I don't believe you. It says that they, they thought it was nonsense. That's exactly what that word means. Nonsense. Like you're, you're a crazy person. Get out of here. I don't believe you. It was nonsense to them. They, they had to figure it out for themselves. They didn't believe at first. So we have to ask ourselves, is the resurrection true or is it nonsense? Because the answer to that question changes everything. Changes everything. Now, I believe this is true. And I believe as Christians, if you're here and you're like, man, I've put my faith in Jesus. I am a believer. I'm a Christian. I believe that we can have confidence in the truth and the validity of the resurrection. We do not have a blind faith where we're just kind of grasping and hoping and wishing that this is true. No, we, we, we can believe firmly and have confidence in the truth of the resurrection. There's a lot of reasons why. I just want to give you three. Three reasons why I believe the truth of the resurrection. And if you're taking notes, you can write these down. But the first one, the first reason why I believe this is true is the eyewitness accounts. The eyewitness accounts. Jesus' resurrection, the stories that we have in Scripture about Jesus— are all written as eyewitness accounts from people who were there, who saw it happen, who heard the words, who, who saw Jesus raised from the dead. The apostle Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse three, he says this, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles, last of all, is one born at the wrong time. He also appeared to me. So what Paul reminds us here is, first of all, that the resurrection matters. This is a big deal. Right? This is first importance. This is, this is a big deal. This is key. This is primary. But he also tells us the reason we can believe and have confidence in that is because there's plenty of people here alive right now living in this moment that saw it happen. That saw it happen. He says that there were people that he appeared to these people and these people and 500 people at one time. And and a lot of them are still alive. Now, there's this false belief that's often taught out there that the the stories in Scripture, these gospel accounts of Jesus were written 100, 200, 300 years after Jesus had died. But we know and and can have a lot of confidence that that's just not true at all. It's not true at all. A lot of, of the gospel writings, a lot of our New Testament was written just a few years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. The gospel of Mark was written about 10 or 15 years after Jesus died and rose again. What Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians was a little over 20 years after all this had happened. Now just think about something that happened in your life 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, something like that, that you, that you experienced, that you were there. And imagine somebody coming in and being like, no, that didn't happen. You'd be like, I was there. What are you talking about? We were having dinner with, uh, with my, my family. Uh, we went over to my mom's house last night and had Easter dinner with, with my mom, stepdad, and my, my sisters and, and all of our kids. And I don't even know how we got on this topic, but, but Y2K came up. I don't know if you guys remember Y2K at all, but there was this legitimate fear and stress at the end of 1999, going into the year 2000, that the world was just going to shut down. Like everything was running on computers then. We barely understood the internet at that time. I was only in eighth grade, but y'all, I remember like people were losing their minds about this. And we just thought like, man, as soon as that thing clicks to double zero on these dates and computers and stuff, it's like, they're just going to shut down. They're going to be like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And we're just going to shut down and we're going to go back to like the dark ages. Like that was the fear. That was legitimate concern. So if anybody was like, no, that didn't happen. What are you talking about? No, nobody really believed that. I'd be like, no, man, I was there. I was there. I remember that was only 23 years ago. Like that wasn't that long ago. I was there, right? Like, this is what's happening with Jesus. Paul's saying, look, it's not that long ago that this happened. There's people alive right now that you can go and ask and they'll tell you this happened. So the eyewitness accounts of Jesus should carry a lot of weight with us. This is a big deal. All right, the second thing, second thing, the body's actually gone. The body is actually gone. There is no place where we can go and visit the tomb of Jesus where the body's laid to rest. Like there's, you know, you can think of any famous person, any religious leader, especially that, that has lived and died. Man, we can go, we can find their grave. We know where they're buried. Even some of these religious leaders like Muhammad, where, where he's buried and laid to rest. Man, there's this worship happens here. Right? Like people go to worship at the tomb of these religious leaders. Well, look, we know where Jesus was buried. We know. The New Testament tells us that he was buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man at that time. Everybody in Jerusalem would have known where Joseph of Arimathea tomb was, right? Like, so if, if these, these women went to the tomb 
and he wasn't there, they'd be like, well, here's Joseph. Joseph's tomb is over here. Y'all were confused. He's over here. And here's the body, right? Like they would just produce the body. But you can't do that with Jesus because there's no body. There's no body. We can even go and visit where we know Jesus was laid to rest in Jerusalem. There's a church there. We can go and worship there. But guess what's not going to be there? Jesus's body. The body is gone. It's not there. And then the third reason, the third reason I believe that the resurrection is true is the other popular theories out there to explain this just don't hold up. The other theories just don't hold up. One of the more popular theories is is what's called the swoon theory, the swoon theory. And this is the theory that Jesus didn't actually die. He didn't actually die. He just kind of died, seemed like he died. They put him in the tomb and just, you know, chilling there for like 36 hours, 48 hours, whatever, what, like just chilling there in the nice cold tomb, laying down, just taking a rest from all the beatings and the crucifixion. He just kind of was like, oh man, got my strength back. Oh, there's this big rock. Let me just push that out of the way and I'm good to go. Let me just go on my merry way, right? Like he didn't actually die. Like, so the problem with that, the problem with that is he was put to death by crucifixion by the Romans. And by this point in history, the Romans had perfected this horrible and gruesome way to kill people. All right, so what they did, again, I told you this, uh, the crucifixion would start with this beating. And they gave you a severe beating and whipping and lashing that just tore you to shreds. And a lot of people even died from the beating, didn't even make it to the cross. They just died in that moment. So Jesus gets through that beating and then he has to drag this 300 pound cross about a mile to where he would be crucified. They put him on the cross. They nail these, these huge spikes into his wrists and into his feet and they hang him there. And see, the thing about crucifixion is you died by suffocation. You typically didn't die from the beatings and the pain once you got to that point. You died from suffocation because you had to to push yourself up from your feet to take a breath and your body would just hang there like this if you didn't do that. So eventually you would get so exhausted, you couldn't push up anymore and you would suffocate. And again, the Romans had perfected this. So what they would do to make sure that you died, they'd do a couple of different things. One, they might break your legs. If it was taking too long, they were getting bored, whatever it was, they'd break your legs so you couldn't push up anymore. And then once they thought you were dead, what they would do is just make sure they'd, they'd jab this spear into your side. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus. Jab the spear in your side so you'd finish bleeding out and make sure you were dead at that point. These executioners were held accountable by people who could put them to death if they failed at this job. So the idea that these professional executioners just somehow messed up with one of the most important executions of their lives just doesn't make sense. All the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead. The Roman officials wanted Jesus dead. Like they wanted this guy gone. He was causing too much trouble for him. They would have made sure that he was dead. So that just doesn't make sense. Another one, a popular one is just the wrong tomb theory. We kind of just talked about this a little bit, that, that the women who went there, the apostles, they just somehow went to the wrong tomb. But again, we, they would have known, oh, he was buried in Joseph's tomb. So let's just go ask Joseph. Hey, Joseph, is this your tomb? Yes. Okay, cool. The body's gone. Or he'd be like, no, that's not my tomb. My tomb's over there. So, you know, somehow these, these people just, you know, made a, made a left instead of a right. And they got to the wrong tomb. We're like, he's alive. He's not here. Everybody at the time would have been like, no, you're crazy because the tomb is over here. And let's just push the stone away. Here's the body. Y'all stop this. So that one doesn't make sense. Another popular one is just the hallucination theory, that people just somehow imagined that Jesus was alive. Now, again, the problem with this is that Jesus appeared to people at different times, different places, different groups. He was walking on this earth in his resurrected form for about 40 days before he ascended back to heaven. 
And this is when Paul says he appeared to 500 people at once. I mean, just think about that. 500 people at one time hallucinating the same exact thing. That doesn't make any sense. That just, just, just does not make sense. And, and then the last one, the last one, I think this is usually one of the most popular ones, is that the disciples just lied. They just lied. They snuck in there. They somehow, these fishermen overpowered these Roman guards and got rid of them. They moved the stone away. They took Jesus' body, destroyed the body, got rid of it somehow, like, you know, put it in the sea, whatever it was, got rid of the body, and they just lied about it. They're like, look, guys, he's risen from the dead. We just want to start this new religious movement. We don't like the Jews anymore. We just want to do our own thing. And here's how we're going to do it. We're just going to lie about this. And look, that can hold up for a little bit until you start to think about what happened to these disciples. First of all, they were all brutally killed for their faith. Look, I don't know about you. I feel like I could hold up a lie for a while if I really wanted to, if it was really that important. But you threaten me with beheading or being boiled alive like the apostle John was or crucified like Peter. Nah, I'm good. Just kidding, y'all. Just kidding. I, you, know, you know what I said about you? That was just a joke. I was just kidding with you, man. That wasn't true. I was lying. Please don't kill me. All right? Like, I don't, I don't know about y'all, but I would not go through with it if I knew that I was lying. The other part that doesn't make sense about that is that the apostles changed. They were different. I mean, you look at Peter. Peter, the night that Jesus was arrested, he kind of sneaks around and follows Jesus. And he's confronted three times by people that are like, oh, hey, you're, you're one of Jesus' followers. And each time Peter's like, nope, not me, not me. Even curses out a little girl about it, right? Like he's just like, nope, not me. He's terrified. He's filled with fear about him following the same thing that's happening to Jesus. So he denies it. But then after the resurrection, you fast forward about a month and a half on the day of Pentecost. And Peter, the same Peter who was terrified of a little girl, is boldly proclaiming the risen Jesus to the very people that killed him. Who does that? That makes sense. You think about the apostle Paul. This guy was the main persecutor of the early church, man. He loved putting Christians in jail and seeing them put to death. And then all of a sudden, he goes from persecutor of the Christians to now he's following Christ and telling other people about Jesus. That doesn't just happen on its own. That doesn't make sense without him actually seeing the risen Jesus and his life being changed forever. That doesn't happen. Another crazy thing is James, the brother of Jesus worships Jesus as God. How many of you guys have siblings? Brother, sister, anybody? What would it take for you to worship your brother or sister as God? Just think about that for a minute. I don't know about you, that ain't happening with mine. There is no way I'm worshiping any of my siblings unless they were put to death and rose from the dead, right? Like unless this actually happened. So let's just, for, for the sake of argument, for the sake of the rest of our time, let's just assume that this is true. Even if you're like, man, I'm not sure. I'm still, I guess I got some doubts, still got some questions. Just for a moment, just, just entertain me for the next few minutes. Let's just assume that this is true. What would that mean? What would that mean for us? What would that change about my life? Well, three things will end here. Three things that the resurrection changes about me if it really happened. First one, first one is Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is who he said he was. So if, if Jesus really did arise from the dead, then, then everything that we see recorded about Jesus in here is true. It's true that, that he really is the Messiah, that he really is the Savior, that he really is God. Jesus came and proclaimed, I am God in the flesh, right? He's the second person of the Trinity. He was the Messiah. This is what he was claiming. He was telling people, I'm here to save you from your sins and I'm gonna die and I'm gonna rise from the dead. 
If he really did rise from the dead, then everything else is true too. Jesus is who he says he was. And what that means is one of the things that Jesus said is that salvation can only come through him. So what he says in John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is telling us there is that if we want salvation, if we want forgiveness from our sins, if we want to one day when we die, go and spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, the only way to do that is through him. It's through him. So the resurrection means that Jesus really is who he said he was. The second thing it tells us is that we are sinners in need of a savior. The resurrection really happened again. Everything else we see in here is true. And what the Bible tells us very clearly and plainly is that we are sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's two things here that I want to point out. That, that word all means all. It means all of us. Look around the room. Everybody look around the room. We're all sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. That's what that means. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Your kids are sinners. Your sweet grandma, you never think could ever do anything wrong in her life. She's a sinner, all right? She is a sinner. We're all sinners. All of us are sinners. We are all sinners. And what that, that word means for sin here, specifically in Romans, it means to miss the mark. And oftentimes we think of like where we're aiming for something and we're just kind of just a little off center. That, that's what it means to miss. No, it means that here's our target and we're like all the way over here. We're like shooting all the way over here, aiming at something completely different. That's what it means to sin. So we're all sinners. We all miss the mark. We all do things that the Bible, that God would say is wrong. We say, think, and do things that all go against God's ways. Every single one of us. What it says here is that that we fall short of the glory of God. What that's communicating to us is that we fall short of God's standard. Now, here's the thing about God's standard. It's perfection. God's standard is perfection. God cannot allow sin into his presence. So what that means is, unless we are perfect, we can't be in the presence of God. Well, you just said I'm a sinner, Travis, so therefore I'm not perfect. Right, exactly. We're not perfect. We fall short. We miss the mark. We are sinners. We have fallen short of God's standard. And because of that, because we're not perfect, what the Bible tells us is that we've stored up this debt. We stored up this debt and eventually we're going to have to pay for it. Eventually we're going to have to pay for it. Like sometimes, you know, we, we think about our, our sins. Sometimes I think like a credit card, like, you know, you can swipe as much as you want to until you hit the limit. But as long as you make those minimum payments, man, you're good. You're good, man. Interest rates. Yeah, sure. Rack it up, whatever. It doesn't matter. I can just make my $15, $35, whatever it is. As long as I'm doing that, then, then I'm good. And I don't have to really worry too much about the collectors coming and taking away all my stuff, right? That, that's typically what we think. Like, oh, I, I can just do a little bit and then I'm good. So we think, well, I know, I know God said perfection, but, but, but I'm trying. I'm trying hard, God. I'm trying to do good stuff. Sure, I make mistakes, but, but I'm not as bad as some of those other people. I've got, I've got good intentions, you know, we think that, that just at, at the end, we're just kind of hopeful that, that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and God's going to go, you know what? You know what? You, you tried. A for effort. Come on in here. 
But that's, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says even one sin condemns us to hell forever. I don't know about you, but I've committed way more than one sin. So we have stored up this debt that we're eventually going to have to pay. And the payment for our sins is death and wrath and hell forever, separated from God's presence for all of eternity. That's our fate. That's where we're heading, unless somebody saves us. So we are sinners in need of a savior, and Jesus is that savior. Romans 5.8 says that, that God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the whole point of the cross. It's the whole point of Jesus living the perfect life that we never could. This is the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead three days later so that through faith in him, we can have salvation. That's what the Bible tells us. That through faith in Jesus, when we put our faith and our trust in him, Jesus takes that debt of sin and he wipes it away. He takes it away completely gone forever. We are fully forgiven. We put our faith in Christ. The Bible says that our past, present, future sins, all forgiven in Jesus Christ. The Bible also says that that when we put our faith in Jesus, what happens is, is that Jesus takes all of our sin right on the cross. He takes on our sin. He takes on the wrath. He pays the penalty. He pays the punishment that we deserve. He dies in our place. He takes on all of that. And then we put our faith in him. He gives us his righteousness and perfection. So we could never measure up to God's standard. But the good news of the gospel tells us is that we don't have to. We can't do it anyways. Somebody has to do it for us, and that's Jesus. Through faith in him, we have forgiveness and salvation. And the last thing the resurrection tells us about ourselves is is that the worst things aren't the last things. The worst things aren't the last things. If the resurrection is true, it means the worst things aren't the last things. The resurrection is true. It means that guilt and that shame that I constantly carry with me for all my failures, all my mistakes, all those times I fell short, all those times I hurt somebody that I care about and I love, all that guilt and that shame that I carry, the resurrection is true, that doesn't get the last word. Guilt and shame do not get the last word because when we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us there is no more condemnation. There is no one and no thing left to condemn us for our sins, left to accuse us for all the wrong that we've done. Jesus takes on all of that. If the resurrection is true, addiction doesn't get the last word. One of the beautiful things that scripture tells us about that moment that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, it says that that the power of sin was defeated. Through faith in Jesus, sin no longer has a grip on my heart and my life. Addiction does not get the last word. Jesus has broken the power of sin. If the resurrection is true, then pain and hardship and difficulty and struggle and despair, it does not get the last word. Through Jesus, we have the promise of eternal life lived in the new heavens and the new earth, free from from pain, free from sin, free from, from evil and destruction and brokenness and struggle and hardship and difficult days. Our pain in this life, our suffering in this life does not get the last word. Despair does not get the last word because we have hope, church. We have hope in Jesus because the resurrection is true. 
the worst things aren't the last things. Because the resurrection is true, death, our greatest enemy, that thing that everyone fears, man, what's going to happen when I die? What does the end of this life look like? Death does not get the last word. We read this earlier, but, but John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Church, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what Easter reminds us of, that even death, which comes for all of us, it does not get the last word. Death in this life is not the end of our lives. It's not the end of our story. In fact, what the Bible tells us that the end of this life means it's just the beginning of true, everlasting, abundant life. Because the resurrection is true, we can have life. We can have hope. We can have freedom. We can have forgiveness. We don't have to live in brokenness anymore. We don't have to live in pain anymore. We don't have to live in despair anymore. As we end today, I want to ask one final question. And that's this. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? How would you answer that question? And at any moment on, on any Sunday at any church service, I think there's, there's four groups of people represented. They would each answer this question differently. The, the first group is people who would say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I have a relationship with Jesus. I've put my faith in him. I've put my trust in him. And I'm living for him. Doesn't mean I'm always perfect. Doesn't mean I don't still struggle. Doesn't mean I don't still fall short but I'm living for Jesus. I have faith and I have confidence in the forgiveness that he has provided. So that's the first group. Second group are people that are here that have not yet begun a relationship with Jesus, but may want to. Maybe you've realized, maybe you've come to the understanding, man, I'm I'm not a believer. I haven't put my faith in Jesus, but I want to do that today. I want to do that today. It's people that, that are ready to go from, from not believing in Jesus to believing in Jesus. And I just want to be clear that, that what makes us a Christian, what brings us salvation and forgiveness is faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than me putting my head in an oven makes me a biscuit, all right? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. Just coming to church does not mean you're a Christian. Because your family members are Christians, does not mean that you're a Christian. It's not how it works. Just because grandma was a Christian or your parents were a Christian doesn't mean that that gets applied to you. That's not how this works. What makes us a Christian, what gives us salvation is faith in Jesus. So if you're here and you're in that second group, you're like, man, I, I'm seeing that, that, that I haven't put my faith in Jesus, but man, I, I'm ready. Just hold on. I'm gonna come back to you in a minute. The third group of people that are here that would say, who is Jesus? You'd go, I don't know. I'm not sure yet. I've got a lot of questions. I've got a lot of doubts. I've got a lot of you know, misunderstandings. Maybe I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm open to it, but I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. And the fourth group would say that, I, I don't I hear what you're saying about Jesus, Travis. Don't want any part of that. The only reason I'm here is because my parents dragged me here, right? Like, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm just trying to appease my mom and dad. And that's why I'm here because they love Easter. They love Jesus, but I, nothing for me. Don't want any part of that. Well, if you're part of those last two groups, here's what I would say to you. Keep coming. Keep coming. 
Jesus and God is, is not scared of your doubts. He's not scared of your questions. So I love, so I love scripture. Whatever doubts you're struggling with, whatever questions you have about this, scripture already asks. It already asks. We don't have to be scared of, of coming to God with, with our questions or our doubts or think that he doesn't care. He deeply cares. He wants to meet you in that moment. So I want to encourage you, keep coming. Search for truth. Really, I, I want you to think deeply, who is Jesus? Is this true? Because if, if it's true, it changes everything. And I truly believe if your desire in your heart is to find the truth about Jesus, God's going to meet you in that searching. So keep searching. This is a safe place to come and and wrestle with those questions. You're not going to scare us off because you're like, I don't believe this is crazy. Okay, let's talk about it. So keep coming. I want to spend our last moments here talking about that second group. So here's what I'm going to ask everybody to do. I'm going to ask everybody here, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to talk to those first two groups. First, for those of you who are here that, that would say, I've put my faith in Jesus. In a moment, we're going to do what we do every single Sunday, and that is celebrate communion. This is a time for believers only, for those people who have said, yes, I have put my faith in Jesus. So if you're here and that's you, I want to encourage you, take this time, take this moment to just spend some time in prayer. Spend some time celebrating who Jesus is and and what he's done and what this day represents and what this means. And then as you're ready, as your hearts are prepared, you go to either side of the room, you you go to the tables that we have set up and you you take the elements, you take, you, you eat and you drink and you remember that Jesus gave his body for us, that he spilled his blood for us, for our salvation, for our redemption. And he rose from the dead on the third day. So we take, we eat, we drink and we celebrate our risen savior. Now, if you're here, and you're part of that second group and say, Travis, you know, I thought I was a Christian, but I'm realizing I'm not. Or you'd say, man, I'm known for a long time and the Lord's been working on me and I'm ready to make that step. Here's what I would ask you to do. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, that if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, he will be saved. It also says a few verses before that, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So if you want to go today from not believing to believing, from not having faith to having faith, this is your moment. This is your moment. And all you got to do is tell Jesus that. I'll lead you in a prayer here in a second, but that's all you got to do. Just tell Jesus what's on your heart. And that's really what all prayer is. It's just telling Jesus what's going on. So if you're here and that's you, I just want you to, you can silently repeat this to yourself. And look, there's no magic in these words. Nothing special about this. You can make it your own. But you just say, Jesus. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm not perfect and I have fallen short. I know that because of my sin, I deserve hell forever. Jesus, I'm asking you to save me. I put my faith and my trust in you. And I commit my life to you, Jesus. Now with every head bowed and every eye closed still, I just want to, Say, if that's you today, if you prayed that prayer, maybe you've prayed it before, but it didn't really, weren't there yet. You didn't really mean it. But if that's you today, I'm just going to ask you just a favor, just a quick thing. Just look up at me. That's all I'm asking. All right, in a moment, I'm going to pray. 
I'm gonna pray for us. And again, we're gonna step into this time of worship and communion. And look at that, if that was you, I'm gonna ask something really awkward of you. And I know like you might not wanna do this, but I'll be in the back hanging out while we're worshiping and singing. And I would just love for you to come and talk to me. Just come back there. Let's just talk about this, talk about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life today. And then you're like, man, that's weird. People are gonna look at me and they're gonna know what I'm doing. That's awkward and that's weird. Look, I can promise you this. I know the people in this room. And the only reaction they're gonna have is one of celebration. So if that was you today, meet me in the back. I'd love to chat with you more about this. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you again for who you are and what you've done. Jesus, that you have conquered death. You have conquered sin. You have conquered the grave and through faith in you, Jesus, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear what comes after this life. We don't have to fear the difficulties of this life, Lord, because we look ahead. We look forward to perfection with you, Jesus. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for saving us, for forgiving us, Lord. We love you. We give you all the praise and all the glory today. In your name we pray, amen.